Hi, this is Nikki Belmonte, Executive Director of the American Birding Association. We are so excited to kick off our 2023 nesting season appeal. This year, we are celebrating the changemakers in our young birder programs. The amazing work of these young people are a direct result of ABA's Young Birder Programs. These programs provide a starting point for youth to become lifelong birders and conservationists. The ABA Young Birder Programs are made possible by the generosity of donors like you. Please donate online at aba.org appeal or call us at 800-850-2473. Thank you for your support. Now, enjoy this week's podcast. Hello, and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I am Nate Swick, and I am back from an all-too-brief trip to Ohio for the biggest week. More than any other event on the birding calendar, I think biggest week is a homecoming. It's the time I get to see so many people that I frequently only see for those few days in Ohio, and that is super great. I want to thank all the listeners who came up and said hello and that they enjoyed the podcast. It's very gratifying to meet people on the other side of the microphone. I do my part of this show in my own room, my own home, wholly separate from the people that consume it. And it means a lot to know that there are folks out there actually enjoying what we do here. So thanks for that. Uh, To those of you I missed, I'm sorry. It was a very short trip for me this year. Next year, schedule permitting, we'll do a longer one. As for the birding... It was in the first few days of the festival, what a lot of Ohio regulars would call a little slow. The diversity was there. The numbers just weren't. But come Thursday night, the winds changed. And Friday morning on the boardwalk, the morning I had to drive back home, uh, was very good. I saw lots of the regulars in the short time I was there. Cape May warblers all over the place. American woodcock nesting right right off the trail. And eastern whippoorwill roosting that attracted some intense Miggy Marsh crowds. It's just a really nice morning, and I understand that the rest of the weekend was really good as well. What a festival. I'd encourage anyone who hasn't attended to go at least once. You don't have to do the whole boardwalk madness scene. There are a lot of great birding sites that aren't crowded, but it is worth experiencing that at least once. I enjoyed all of it. Thanks to Biggest Week for having me up to lead some trips till next year. On the show this week, We'll celebrate our 2023 Bird of the Year by talking to Marina Ritchie. She's the author of the book Halcyon Journey in Search of the Belted Kingfisher, a lovely piece of nature writing about deep birding and a pair of belted kingfishers in Montana. She is with me right after this week's Rare Birds. This is your Rare Bird Focus for the middle of May 2023. A few exciting first records around the ABA area this week. We'll start in Missouri, where the state's first Cassin's Kingbird was seen in Greene County. Of the North American Kingbirds, Cassin's is probably one of the species with the least expansive pattern of vagrancy. Western and tropical are fairly expected in the east. Eastern is annual in some numbers in the southwest. This is changing, however, in recent years, where Cassin's Kingbird has been added to many eastern states' lists. Next door in Kansas, an apparent Mexican duck was photographed in Hamilton County. This is a bit more complicated as the mallard-modeled Mexican complex is devilishly hard, and this bird does show some features that could suggest modeled or even some hybrid combination of Mexican and modeled. The phenotypic limits of these species are still being worked out on the margins, and the rare bird authorities in Kansas certainly have their work cut out for them. 
More Cut and Dried is an ABA code for crescent-chested warbler in Brewster County, Texas. That is Big Bend National Park. This bird is currently on Texas's presumptive list, which means only written accounts previous to this one. So this well-photographed individual does make everything official at last. And we cast an excited eye towards Alaska this week as birders are setting up shop for the spring migration season on the Aleutians and the Bering Sea Islands of St. Paul and St. Lawrence. And they are turning up hoss finches on Attic and St. Paul, along with eyebrowed thrush and olive-backed pipit at St. Paul. Fingers crossed we have another great season to live vicariously through. Those are the recent highlights, but for the full list, check out the ABA Rare Bird Alert on Fridays at aba.org slash rba. You can also follow along with all the Rare Bird news in our ABA Rare Bird Alert group on Facebook and in ABA community. Despite being such a charismatic bird, there are very few books about our 2023 Bird of the Year, Belted Kingfisher, but my guest, Marina Ritchie, has written one, her 2022 title, Halcyon Journey, in Search of the Belted Kingfisher documents the seven years she spent watching a pair of kingfishers near her home in Missoula, Montana, and her relationship with the birds and with herself. She also writes about it in an upcoming issue of Birding Magazine. That will be the June issue, so you can look out for that. Welcome, Marina. It's great to talk to you. Thank you, Nate. It's great to be here. Can you talk about what uh, initially drew you to this pair of belted kingfishers and, and why you stayed with them for so long? Yes. Uh, I initially uh, was looking really for a bird to follow, a kind of species of bird that lived near my home. And it was very hard to choose because yeah, um, yeah, I, had so many, <laughs> I love the dippers on the creek yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and all the things people live in. And it actually hadn't occurred to me that nobody had written a book on the belted kingfisher. And it had more to do with just, you know, a couple of facts. One, of course, they're wedded to waterways and riverways and the places I love to go. And I lived very close to a, a beautiful creek coming out of the rattlesnake wilderness in Missoula. And But then what sort of cinched it is has to do with the title of my book. Mm -hmm. And that's Halcyon Journey. And I've had a lot of people go, what the heck is Halcyon? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it's actually... Uh, a word that I thought I had known at the time, that meaning peace, trans tranquility, halcyon nice. days. And this one morning, right before I chose the Kingfisher, I was reading the word of the day, literally in the dictionary on my laptop. And it said, it was the noun, halcyon, number one definition, Kingfisher. And of course, it's referring to the common Kingfisher over in Europe. But I loved the idea of uh, a bird associated with happiness. And so I was like, oh, yeah, I'm going to take this bird. And so I kind of cheerfully went on to, you know, I'm going to follow kingfishers and found out they are fiendish and difficult. <laughs> and hard. You know, that's actually what we talked about when we were choosing our 2023 bird of the year was that, oh, yeah, belted kingfisher. Everyone loves belted kingfisher. They're always so cool. Man, they are hard to photograph and get close to. They're so wary and skittish, too, despite being big and charismatic. Exactly. And uh, so uh, so it was kind of funny in a way that I thought I would just, you know, find a pair to watch, <laughs> no problem. And uh, But, you know, as I can write in my book, I was like, well, sometimes the hard and difficult bird is the most rewarding after all. Yeah. Did you did you look for a certain pair of belted kingfishers did you just you, you've been birding in this area i assume regularly so you sort of knew there was there were kingfishers around 
yes, I knew there were kingfishers around. I had no idea where a nest bank might be. Mm-hmm. And as we know, they, they nest in an earthen bank. It has to be yeah. a steep vertical earthen bank. I didn't know where there was one. So at first I was had a, a larger perimeter. I was like, oh, maybe the Clark Fork River, which flows through uh, Missoula or Bitterroot and but, but the more I searched, the more I just wanted to find the pair on my, on my home stream and a pair, because they aren't the same pair every year. Yeah, that's pretty wild. Were you able to tell that they were different pairs every year? Did they act differently? What, what you know, were they it was of... challenging because, of course, uh, I didn't ban the birds. It was a citizen right. science project. Yeah. And my, I have these two naturalist friends who joined in with me often, and we would confer. It's always nice to have more than one person thinking about this. And For sure. we, we decided that the female from the first season uh, came back because uh, her belt was pretty distinctive. It didn't meet oh, in the middle. Okay. You know, and that's something I explore actually in the book is yeah, exactly. the size and differences of these females felt. And uh, and then we just kind of thought the second season, which would be 2010, um, they seemed awfully familiar with each other in the place, <laughs> but we're kind of guessing. And uh, after that, there were some differences, of course. So in the, the few studies that have been done about kingfishers, which are not very many, um, they yeah. are considered seasonally monogamous, but yes, sometimes uh, they will repair up again. What was your day-to-day like while you were engaged with these particular birds? Well, that was what was so exciting about this experience. And what I wanted to convey in the book is that I really loved my creek stream. It was close by, and I was a runner, and I spent so much time. And But really, once you have like this sort of was like a hunter, you know, with your prey, mm-hmm. <laughs> you're yeah. like zeroing in, like, I want to follow and know these birds. And, and a lot of time I wasn't finding them. So, uh, especially in the first season, I would get up very early in the morning and I kept getting up early and early until I was in the dark coming out to the, the creek. And there's something about, you know, being present in times you normally wouldn't be, um, where you yeah. find out the most incredible things, you know. So you, I was out there in the blizzard looking for, spring a spring blizzard looking for nesting birds you know finding trying to find the nest so yeah a lot of my routine was seeking the birds and once i found a nesting pair which i eventually did several years in a row then i'd spend a lot of time uh setting up blind and and watching them and being there as much as i could you know i wasn't my only job unfortunately <laughs> right 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 yeah it is kind of interesting the way that they choose their nests. I had the good fortune to kind of be in the vicinity of a pair of nesting kingfishers at a state park that I used to I used to frequent and, and work at. And there was this pond which they where they fished in the sort of stream. But like the cliff that they the this, the bank that they made their nest in was like quite a ways away from the from the stream itself. It was very difficult to find. It was you know a couple hundred meters away. And the only reason I was able to notice them was that. You know, you'd see them going back and forth through the woods, which I thought was very odd. And then I followed them, and then lo and behold, there's there's the bank there where they're, that they're using. I, I guess we frequently think of kingfishers being very closely associated with water. I mean, fish in the name, but yeah, they are they they can really travel a little bit when they've found a a good place to to make their nest. That's so cool that you found that nest like that, Nate. Um, and I I actually haven't found one that's farther away like that, but. Uh, some of the people, the researchers that I interviewed, like Mick Thomas, uh, who did the initial 
belted kingfisher work in the 70s was finding them uh, even like in a gravel pit, you know, and yeah. quite far away, sometimes half a mile from a lake. So uh, it's unusual. I'm sure they prefer to be yeah, right over no the doubt. water. Because I watched yeah. when it's I was always, watching. It's always nice to be close to the grocery store, I guess. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> like, when I watched my nest bank, which was right on the water, I mean, they could sometimes go up, down, up, down and catch like three fish in a row, you know, versus having to cart it off every time. Yeah. What did you learn about kingfishers that you didn't necessarily know? before, either from the birds that you watched or from the research that you did for the book about kingfishers more generally? Yeah, you know, it was it's something I think is a lesson for all of us. When we read about a bird and we, and we read everything we can find out, there's always something unique about individuals that's not in the book, you know, not in the textbook. No doubt. And so we, and so that's a delight to find. So while I talk in my book, uh, about an actual documented citizen science discovery that got published. Yeah, um, there are yeah. also just we'll talk many about that, things. Okay. I can, we can talk about that. But yeah, yeah. there are just many little things, you know, like, oh, I didn't think that um, the when I was watching a, an incubating pair, which, believe me, can be sort of a, a, a meditative exercise. Because <laughs> all, That's a nice way of saying it tedious. Nothing <laughs> going on. The longer you stay, then something goes on. And so I found like ruffling swallows were just agitating the heck out of these this incubating female. And she'd come out of the, she'd stop incubating and chase the, you know, mm-hmm. the, the ruffling swallows away. Or I also saw a female come in with a fish and feed a male who was incubating on the inside. And that had never been documented. So hmm. you know, there's all kinds of things that, uh, that were, just by being there and being present, you find out like, oh, maybe other people have seen this, but maybe not. Yeah. It's almost like you're you're doing this sort of, you know, base observational natural history studies that people were have been doing for centuries almost. It's almost like you feel sort of a connection to those people who are doing this first. And also sort of a sense of amazement that even, you know, we've built a kingfisher we've known about for Ever. It's a very familiar bird for a lot of people, continent-wide, found almost anywhere you find water, who doesn't enjoy seeing one, still had these sort of mysteries and surprises about it that people didn't know. Exactly. And uh, of course, I find the Belted Kingfisher particularly secretive and mysterious. And yeah, maybe that's part of it. For many yeah. reasons that make, them, make it, that choice such a fantastic bird of the year for you. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and a topic for your book, too. There's, there's yeah. so many cool things going on. <laughs> and I will say, I had no idea you were going to pick the Delta Kingfishers. Oh, yeah. Surprise for everybody. I was so <laughs> thrilling when I found out, you know, that my book had come out, uh, you know, just, just the year before. So. Yeah, gizmet, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, you wanna, we'll, we'll talk about that citizen science uh, discovery that you made. You know, one of the more fascinating things you witnessed was this behavior that had never been documented in belted kingfishers. You call it, you write about it in the piece for Birding Magazine, you write about it in the book, um, call it aerial ramming, which is, I have to say, a really evocative behavioral <laughs> name. <laughs> Can you explain what it is and, and what you thought while you were witnessing this? Aerial ramming, isn't that a great name? We got it's great. Go yeah, I love it. Somewhere else, but anyway, yes. So uh, my naturalist friends Lisa and Paul and I uh, were just out, you know, in our normal watching a pair that we've been watching uh, in spring excavating a nest. And uh, this one morning, we had the spotting scope set up, and all of a sudden, we saw 
the, we saw the pair arrive and they were perching, oh, 12 feet or more away from the bank on the branch and then would just take turns flying at a high rate of speed and just slam beak first into a rather hard wall of earth um, because there was no purchase there. There was no way, like typically what kingfishers do almost all the time, and according to our work, nobody else had ever documented this. They're supposed to just sort of cling to the edge of, of, mm-hmm. the, of the dirt bank and then uh, use their bill to chip away at beginning until they can get those little feet in there and they start digging with their feet. They, they might fly for a, a very short distance, you know, like a foot, you know, but nothing like this. So uh, what we saw was pretty amazing. And what we would sort of cringe you know, every time the bird <laughs> would slam into the wall because it was literally like bounce off flutter down toward That's the tree, wild. barely make it up again to the back, to a tree branch and do it again for three mornings for hours. Jeez, it's, it's, <laughs> it's wild to think that their bodies can withstand that sort of force. I know. And I wondered, again, I don't have the, the research, but those massive heads are pretty good for, you know, catch for going in into the water and catching fish. But I don't know if they're made for that, but yeah, it's almost yeah. like a, a king or a woodpecker sort of thing, like yeah. the, the the force that is needed to kind of strike. There are. I wanted to mention there are uh, there are some other kingfishers in the world who mm-hmm. do some kind of version of aerial ramming. Like even, oh, really? Yeah, just there there never been any in the this uh, megasaurus genus, and there never been certainly any documentations of the belted kingfishers. But in our our little note, which is actually under Paul Hendricks' name, my Wilson Journal of Ornithology, he t- he did really the lion's share of the the write up. Um, you know, he did list the other species that in the world where there was some kind of uh, ramming going on. Sometimes it was into a termitarium, you know, over in Africa in Australia. Yeah, yeah. that's. I mean, it's just it's just fun. Like I said, like the, this bird, and I wonder if it's because of its sort of skittish behavior. Like it is sort of a private bird, especially when it's when it's nesting. Um, or maybe it's just so common and people don't think to like sit and watch for a long time in the 21st century. A lot of times we're guilty of thinking that, you know, our common birds are, are well known and that just isn't the case. So there's a real opportunity for regular birders to do real community science by sitting and watching a bird for a long period of time. This process that you call deep birding is, and how do you, how do you practice that? Yeah, I think. Deep birding is really about going into one bird out of all others to focus mm-hmm. on. But I would say not at the expense of blinders to everything around you. Instead, through my observations, say, of the kingfisher, I became more attuned to relationships among Hmm. other birds and animals and patterns, you know, who would go by at what time, where the rough grouse was always drumming at a certain time where the warbling vireo showed up in spring mm-hmm. each year and the same tree sing because I was following the kingfisher deeply. So I think it's a way to, when you are a deep birder by going, finding out a lot about one bird you're fascinated by, you're always open to the connections to the rest of the neighborhood. How does practicing deep birding improve both your birding skills and sort of the way you enjoy nature? Do you feel more, I don't know, fulfilled after an outing when you're practicing this deep birding? Well, the answer to your first question, uh, I wish I was a better birder. Uh, <laughs> don't we all? 
<laughs> but I will say that by, you know, the, a lot of times we may be feeling in a hurry or we only allot mm-hmm. a certain amount of time or we take a walk and, or we list a few species or even if we go slowly, but if we're sitting in one place, uh, waiting for a kingfisher to possibly show up, maybe seeing one, maybe not, um, you do have this opportunity to tune your ears and, Mm -hmm. you know, to hearing other birds and starting to, to notice who and what they are and taking the time to jump, to not, to go beyond identification. Um, So I think, yes, I think it does help me in in a limited way, become a better birder. And then uh, the second part is, yes, there's just, I think we live in a very frenzied world. There's too much mm, no social doubt. media, too much time on screens, and, and uh, we don't take that time we need. I mean, there's such, and you know this, I'm sure, such a rejuvenating uh, renewal that you find every time you go birding and you are out in nature and spending that time and finding quiet, too. It's something we're short of in this world. I really like this focus that we've seen, certainly since that, it was a little bit before the pandemic, but I think the pandemic really got a lot of people interested in birding for this reason. Um, this this mindful birding or slow birding or deep birding, I think it's, they're all sort of slightly different angles on a similar a similar pastime. But just the idea that there are lots of ways to enjoy birds and whichever way that you sort of enjoy birds is the right way to enjoy birds. I, I think it almost gives people permission to, you know, maybe you're not a lister. That's, that's fine. People like listing. People don't like listing. Whatever. Whatever makes you happy. But sometimes you feel like there's not a place in the birding world or in the nature world for you. Well, I, I really like this sort of permission structure that is being established by a lot of these practices that basically say, however you enjoy birds is a way, is, is valid and validated uh, by you know, any number of people. I, I think that's real. it's really productive for the, both for the birding community and so our, and our greater conservation goals and just for people's personal well-being. You know, getting out in nature is, is great, no matter how you do it. Nature is great. And I love what you're saying. And that's so true. And one of the things that it made me think of too is um, I think it's important for people who are out birding to um, stop to point out what they're seeing to somebody who might be walking by and enlist another watcher. I mean, that, that happened to me. I couldn't resist. I was on the Deschutes River in, in Bend, Oregon, where I live now, and there's a, an actual sculpture that's called the Kingfisher Perch. Oh, really? Right <laughs> in this old mill district near this popular wave where all these people do these kayaking and things. And uh, wouldn't you know, an actual kingfisher male was on the perch, which doesn't happen really? all the time. And I'm just standing there, you know, looking at it. And there's just droves of people on their lunch break going by. And I just I just couldn't help myself. So I started, you know, <laughs> hey, hey, you know, and one after another, people are looking up and we start talking kingfishers and birds. And, you know, I feel like, yeah, maybe not everybody wants that, but those who do, um, they're engaged and they're going to start yeah. looking. And I think that's a really important role we can play in the world when we love birds is to share our passion with others who may may or may not become birds. may not yeah it doesn't it doesn't matter you never know how the spark is going to take with some people it might burn out some people it may take a little while some people may get into it immediately 
I mean, all you can do is present it to somebody and, and they'll take it from there, I guess, to some extent. And, and yeah, birders need to be, birders can be better about that. I'll just say that. Right. <laughs> if you want to, if you want to be, if you don't want to be, that's fine too. There's plenty of people who, who are good at that and, and perhaps the, the right people to do that sort of thing. True. <laughs> you actually spent some time traveling, notably to Southern Africa, the Rio Grande Valley and other places in search of kingfishers. Um, how did that inform your experience with your local belted kingfishers? Oh, I love that question. Yes, uh, in many ways. Uh, I felt that it's a little bit like way when we travel, sometimes we want to go to like a country of origin, you know, someplace mm-hmm. where our ancestors were lived. And, and then, you know, after you've done that, you come back home and you, you look a little differently at the mm-hmm. place you're in and the home you're in and, and how it fits in the globe. And so I felt that was this was similar for me following the closest relative, the ring kingfisher on the lower Rio Grande, and then another relative in the Megaseral genus, the, the giant kingfisher mm-hmm. over in South Africa. Uh, so then when I came home each time to my home stream, I would kind of see, you know, all of a sudden it's like, well, you know, I was less with a kingfisher with hippos or, you know, and, and all <laughs> yeah, right. of a sudden you're, you're, you're in this bigger world, more connected place with the birds you lo- love. And also I was looking in my book, I'm, I was seeking uh, clues uh, to this red belt mystery of why mm-hmm. oh, right, yeah. the female is brighter than the male. And that uh, engaged me in many of my trips away from the creek. Yeah, I mean the the whole megasurl genus is fantastic. The both ringed kingfisher and giant kingfisher. I've, I've had the good fortune to see both of them are just super dramatic. It's like a, I mean, people love belted kingfishers, and and it's hard to, I don't know, I don't want to compare belted kingfisher to ring kingfisher uh, because they're both fantastic birds. But man, just seeing a kingfisher the size of a crow is pretty uh, bracing. <laughs> yes. I think I described the ring kingfishers like a belted kingfisher on steroids. You know? Yeah, for <laughs> just, sure. Wow. For sure. Just bigger and louder and you know, like all the things you love about uh, belted kingfisher plus, you know. Yes. And I was excited to to see the trifecta when I was mm-hmm. on one day on Lower Rio Grande seeing the belted. Oh, yeah. The, 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 the triple. Yeah. All <laughs> together on a canoe trip. Yeah, no doubt. Um. So you engage with a lot of sort of broader nature writing literature in this book. You're clearly inspired by nature writers that came before you. Um, how do you sort of engage with that nature writing that canon, I guess, for lack of a better word, um, in your own writing? How do those people that came before you teach you how to write? I have... Yes, a true love of nature writing, and um, and also I have influences uh, even mm-hmm. with Henry David Thoreau, and I I write about him, and because I lived in Concord, Massachusetts, when I was in high school, and I used to go around with his journals and try to find the places he wrote about. Yeah. So, and then I have just pursued my own writing um, in deep respect for many who have come before us. And I, I think as a nature writer today, it's a very exciting place to be in because there's a lot more diversity. There's Drew Lanham, who's writing such incredible uh, books and writing from the, the 
perspective of people who have been left out of birding, for instance, and uh, and also and poetry too, which poetry. I think is fantastic. Like nature inspired poetry is really yeah. really interesting and, from a birder. Oh, <laughs> and I have to say, I don't know if you knew this, but our poet laureate is Ada Limon, national uh-huh. poet, and her book, uh, her brand new book called The Herding Kind. Her second book is about her second poem is on a kingfisher. Oh really? The beautiful poem about a belted kingfisher. I guess to show that the the ways that kingfishers can inspire all sorts of people. Yeah. So I and I guess I I try to challenge myself as a as a poet too, and I write poetry and uh, to to go beyond words that are straightforward sometimes, but I always want to find the right metaphor or a new way of looking at this world beautiful world we live in to help people go to a new place they hadn't thought about and also mm-hmm. i feel like we have such a calling now because we live in such a, a endangered time for so many bird species and many species on this planet so our role as nature writers uh, it becomes more important than ever to enlist people's engagement with nature so that we, because yeah. I think so much of, of what's happening in our world that isn't good for, for birds and habitat is about disconnect and in uh, our separation. So I think mean, nature writers are, we're all about, you know, connection, connection and action too. You know, I, I write a blog, uh, a bi-monthly blog that can sort of vary, but I often, sometimes if there's something going on, you know, I'm going to let people know they can take take action, whether it's uh, saving trees in a small local park or a bigger issue. For sure. I mean, I've always felt that I probably, you know, said this on the, this podcast many times before that my hope for getting people engaged in birding has always been at, to the greater goal of conservation and just basically creating allies who will be supportive of birds and bird issues and just general nature issues, too. Um, how can you not? care about these things once you know about them yeah once you've witnessed the the issues surrounding them and I, I think you know we all have a role to play in that as as communicators by whatever means we're communicating yes so if you were to practice deep birding with another bird species either local or anywhere um even another kingfisher species which one would you choose oh the whole world birds out there. <laughs> well, um, I am right now, and I'm going to be kind of wiggling out of this question. <laughs> okay, fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> I have been working around in circles in my head with a, with a new book, and mm-hmm. it has to do with twinning my passion for birds with uh ancient forests, particularly of Pacific Northwest. And this idea that birds can take us, birds of these forests and suites of birds in these forests can take us to higher levels all up through the forest that we don't, uh, we don't uh, notice and see, and they can lead us to understanding them. So for instance, I I'm, I was spending some time in the Andrews Forest, which is an experimental forest in the west side of the Cascade, and I climbed a big tree and I wrote about it for with a uh, a young bird scientist 
who is mm-hmm. studying how birds uh, may rely on these little microclimates at every yeah. level of yeah. the forest um, in a time of climate change. It's a cooling place to live. So, you know, so I was li- I'm engaged with all of those birds, Townsend's warblers, hermit warblers, varied thrush, uh, red crossbill, you know, oh, yeah. so... Uh, so the truth is, I'm not choosing one, but I'm falling in love with suites of birds. A place, yeah, very nice. Yeah, a micro place, a little tiny, a little tiny, a, a, an individual tree, even. <laughs> even an individual tree, and that's something too. Is I, I hope to. One another thought I have is how uh, we often witness these amazing migratory birds that are stopping over in our yard. But do we think about where they go after that and their nesting and what they need and can we follow them? I think the varied thrush is a good example. I get pretty excited mm-hmm. when one's here in the winter times, but then I then they they have to go into these deeper forests yeah. uh, to yeah, exactly. to nest and live. So and we have the white headed woodpecker here, which I'm very much in love with. Big, gorgeous, big ponderosa pine spots to nest. Marina Ritchie is the author of Halcyon Journey in Search of the Belted Kingfisher. It's a lovely piece of nature writing. She also has a piece in the June issue of Birding Magazine. Members can check that out. Thank you so much for your time. Good luck on this next book. We're looking forward to that one. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nate. Really appreciate being here with you. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. If you enjoy this podcast, the best way to support it is to join the American Birding Association. You get a lot of great benefits on the side, including our fantastic magazines, discounts to partners like Princeton University Press, Cornell Lab of Ornithology, Beauty of Books, and more. You can find out how to do all of that at aba.org slash join. Special shout outs this week to Craig Gittleman of West Bloomfield, Michigan, Patty Goodman of Spring, Texas, Drew Monkman of Peterborough, Ontario, Brian Reber and family of Mesa, Arizona, Karen Stanko of Holly, Michigan, and Scott Steele of Dayton, Ohio, all of whom recently joined the ABA and noted this podcast as their reason for doing so. Thank you so much. I really appreciate your continued support. Welcome to the ABA. Executive Director of the ABA and Executive Producer of the podcast is Nikki Belmonte, who thinks kingfishers look more professional suspended as opposed to belted. Technical production is by John Lowry, whose Grand Canyon trip was absolutely ruined when an advertisement for a kookaburra experience turned out to be a slightly dim donkey. Social media is by Maggie Fitzgibbon, who has just described for the first time a behavior in which kingfishers use a synchronized rattle, which she is now calling aerial jamming. You can find us online at aba.org. On social media, most everywhere is American Birding Association. On Twitter, we are at ABA with a nod to the recent coronation of His Majesty Charles III. I would like to point out that we in the U.S. will be calling them Constitutional Republic Fishers till at least the end of the month. Questions, comments can come to podcast at aba.org. I'm Nate Swick. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy, everybody. See you next week.